0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. As a matter of fact, for a number of years I was praying to God to allow me to serve a church and I said, there's only one condition. It can't have a name so difficult like Mechernisch. <laughs> so, Sturm, your little sister in Germany, and they say, welcome and God bless you. Last week, Pastor Bailey preached on the very first verses of the Word of God In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, today we continue with the creation account. We do that in one fell swoop from where I just ended up to the point where the earth is ready to receive man, and God will Create man as the next step. So that's going to cover a lot of material, and therefore today's sermon will be kind of a big picture sermon. And if there's a detail that you miss, you can tell me afterwards, and uh, maybe I can say something about it, maybe not. We'll see. But uh, we will have to deal this morning with the big themes of. Creation up to the point, uh, up to verse 25. And let me read that text to you, beginning with uh, verse 3. And I would like to ask you to stand when I read the word of God. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament And divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass "...the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years." And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light From the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded, according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, the cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you this morning that you remind us where we come from, that everything we see and we touch, everything we smell, and indeed, we ourselves come from you, that you are the creator of everything. Lord, we ask you this morning to open our hearts and our ears so that we can understand what you want to tell us through your creation. And I ask you, Lord, that my words may be pleasing to you. Amen. You may be seated. So five and a half days from the creation of light on to the creation of the earth and then the sun and the creation of all sorts of animals and Creeping things. And the first thing that you ask when you read this is, is there any pattern? Is there any order in this? And in fact, there is. The previous verse says, the earth was without form and void. It really wasn't anything. It was kind of like my son's room, you know, where nothing is in its place and nothing seems to have a purpose. That's what the earth was like. But 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that God is not a God of disorder and confusion. And so God first establishes form and order and then turns emptiness into fullness. Since there cannot be form and order in darkness, the establishment of order begins with light. And then it continues with the creation of the firmament on the second day the firmament that separates the waters below from the waters above so that there is a living space in which we can actually breathe. To the Hebrews, the heavens are kind of a watery substance, like water. You can see that in the language where water is mayim and the heavens is shamayim. So it's closely connected even in the words. And then... The next thing in the establishment of order is the appearance of dry ground with vegetation on it. So now we have order and now we turn to f- filling the shape. Day 4 begins with filling the firmament with lights, the sun, the moon, the stars. Day 5 fills the waters below with fish and the waters above with birds. Day six fills the dry land with all sorts of animals. And so there is a movement from formlessness to form and from emptiness to fullness in which God prepared a beautiful, richly adorned home ready for man to move in. Then there's also a second kind of order in this process. Creation begins with things immovable, light. In the Hebrew thinking, light is a substance and it doesn't move. And so, light is the first immovable that is created. And then the firmament, which is fixed, and the dry land and the sea, which are in their places. And then vegetation. Plants have no feet, they're stuck. And then it moves on, creation moves on to things which move, but they move on fixed routes, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then it turns to things which move independently, which breathe, which have blood, and which procreate as male and female, but they do that outside of themselves through eggs. That's fish and birds. And then finally, it turns to things that move and breathe and have blood and procreate as male and female, but they do that within the womb. That's land, animals, and finally, man. God puts his divine command over all creatures that do this, that procreate in the womb, be fruitful and multiply. It is a command for male and female to unite and to produce offspring. And in this, reflect and take part in the creativity of the creator. And everybody who has children knows how wonderful it is to become part of God's creative activity by having children. As we heard in the psalm a few minutes ago. Children are the fruit of a womb is a gift from God. That command first goes to fish and birds and then to all land creatures, including man. So from creation, God does not want males to unite with males and females with females because that doesn't produce offspring. That ridicules what God has ordained. Nor does God want males to to withdraw from females or vice versa and leave the ability to produce fruit unused because that is rejecting God's gift of life. Now, you may have noticed that there was light before God made the sun, the moon, and the stars. In creation, the first light emanated from the darkness, reflecting God's glory. The sun, the moon, and the stars God later puts in the heavens. And they then mark the days, the months, and the seasons as we know them. Now, this is significant because light shining on the earth will last longer than light shining from the sun. All those scientists who claim that the creation account is obviously wrong because we can count the number of years that the sun still has to shine, we say to them, of course, dummy, it's in the Bible. We read in Isaiah 60 and in Revelation 21 that in God's new creation, when Jesus has returned to this world, There will be eternal light for the godly and eternal darkness for the wicked. The glory of God will illuminate the heavenly Jerusalem and Christ will be its light and there will be no sun. So there's a marker here from the very first verses of the Bible to the very last chapters of the Bible. This is also significant because this first light Why does it appear? Simply because God wanted it. And he said so, and there was light. In 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul writes, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, to the Christian who doubts his own faith and who doubts the truth of what he believes and maybe looks back at all the lies and the darkness and the confusion in his past life. And brothers and sisters, this will happen to you if you're a Christian because it happens to all Christians. We all have doubts sometimes. And when that happens, Paul says, no. It's not you dreaming up a story. It was the God who created the light, who put the light of Jesus Christ into your heart. And that tells you creation, the creation account, is not something that you can buy into if you're too stupid for science. But you don't have to. No. It is intimately tied up with our faith in Jesus Christ. Because that assurance Paul gives us means nothing to us if we don't believe that God created light. We have to believe in creation. It's an essential part of our faith. Now, Genesis has three words to describe God's creative activity. It says, God created. It says, God said, and something came into being, and it says God made something. The Bible uses the word God created only, only when God makes something new where previously there was nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, means they weren't there. And God created them out of nothing. Because He's God, He can do that. The word God created appears again when the text speaks of God creating sea creatures and everything that moves in the waters and in the skies. So you ask yourself, well, what's new with sea creatures and birds and then later on the land animals? The answer is they can move. They have blood, and that means they have life. Life is a gift from God. Leviticus forbids the eating of blood, and it says, because the blood is the life, and the life is holy. It is a gift from God. And then Psalm 51, which is one of my favorites, prays, create in me, Lord, a clean heart a heart that enables me to live in your presence. That says only God can create a clean heart in us because a clean heart is at a place where nothing was before, just darkness and filth, and God doesn't improve us. And certainly we don't improve ourselves. God creates something completely new when he enables us To pray to him and to live under his word and to have faith in him. It's a new creation. That's why the Bible says, create in me a new heart. Now, then the text says, God made the sun. He made the moon and the stars. And that emphasizes that he made these things out of stuff that was already there like a potter who takes clay, or somebody who takes stuff and makes a lamp or a lantern, because that's the picture here. God made lanterns and put them up in the sky. And what that says is they are lower in the hierarchy of creation than the heavens, the dry land, and vegetation. So to all those people who worship the sun, the moon, and the stars as gods, which at the time of Moses were Egypt and the Canaanites and the Babylonians and then later the Romans who worshipped the stars, to all these people, the Bible says, guys, that's pretty ridiculous because these things are even lower than the earth. They're just lamps that God put up in the heavens. And so don't worship stuff, worship God. The text goes on and says, God made land creatures probably out of earth, as suggested in Genesis 2, and they too, that means, are pretty low in the hierarchy of creation. So even the biggest and the fiercest ones, like the lions and the snakes, and certainly the calf that the Egyptians prayed to, and later the northern kingdom of Israel did, all these beasts have no claim to being worshipped because they're just made out of stuff. It's absurd to worship them. And then the text says, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So God created the light, and then the text explains to us God also created the firmament and the dry land and vegetation and the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the water, and the land creatures. How? By saying his word, and they were there. Just because he said it. So that's a testimony to God's absolute power and authority and sovereignty. But it is more than that, because the word that I speak is not myself, right? I am not my word. In the same way, God the Father is not the Word. He speaks the Word. But when the Word creates, there must be somebody else creating light in the firmament and so on. And so you ask, well, who is that? And the answer is the Word of God. And so you turn to the the Gospel of John which has its own creation account in the very first chapter. And it tells us, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. And so, the Word of God is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He who became man, Jesus Christ. So the creation account tells us God created, his spirit hovered over the waters, and through the word of God, light and everything else came into appearance. That says in creation account already in the very first passages of the Bible, we have a testimony to the Trinity. God is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Colossians 1, verse 16 says this about Jesus. By him, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Now, you may ask, wasn't Jesus this very wise and pious man who lived and died about 2,000 years ago and became the role model of all pious Christians? No. That's exactly what he not is. He is the Word of God, the Son of God, who was with the Father before the beginning of the world and who will be with the Father when this world has long been forgotten. So to believe in Jesus Christ is not to pick a role model from a group of guys like Nelson Mandela and uh, Mahatma Gandhi, It is to trust in him who made everything. It is to rely on his grace and love and to live according to his word. Why? Because he is stronger than the strongest powers we know because he made them. Because he knows how everything works since he has made it. Because he rules over everything since he created all things. Why, people, would you put your confidence in money or in your family or in the U.S. government or in your gun maybe if you can be at peace and be a friend and trust in the maker of all these things? And again, we see that the Christian faith hangs on creation. The mode of creation is distinction differentiation, division. God divided the light from the darkness. He divided the waters from below from the waters above. He divided the dry land from the seas. Now, the Hebrew word divide does not mean to tear apart something into two things, which really should be one. The Hebrew word means to assign places to different parts. It's as if I divide my large living room into one place where we eat and one place where we watch television each has its place okay and that's what the divide means in the creation account when God divides things he puts them in order he establishes his order the light has its place and the darkness has its place the dry land has its place And the sea has its place. And that is then further emphasized in the fact that God named these different parts of creation. He called the light day, and he called the darkness night, and he called the firmament firmament. To name something in the Bible means to be lord over it, to dominate it, to rule over it. God gave a new name to Abraham showing that from now on Abraham was under his rule. So ruling over both, God gives the day its rule, its role as the time during which man during which man will work and worship God, and the night as the time during which man will sleep. A society which loses the sense of divine division between day and night and the distinction between days of work and days of worship will end up losing its relationship with its creator. We can see that in the modern economy. The modern economy calls us to work without pause. No Sundays. Go to work incessantly so that we can never stop to serve its idols, money and consumption. We must respect God's order of days and nights in order to have a good relationship with him. God called the dry land earth. And in doing so, he says, I'm the owner of the land. It's mine. I rule over it. And therefore, God is the only one who has the right to give people homes, land to live in or to take it away. Bloomington, Indiana, people, is God's own land, literally. Now, you like to say that because you think it's so wonderful and better than any place in the world, which I agree, that's why I love to come here. But Bloomington, Indiana, is also God's own land in the sense that whether or not you have a home here and I have a home here is God's decision, period. He can give it to us. He can take it away from us. At the end of World War II in 1945, Germany was utterly destroyed. Millions of Germans were expelled from their homes in Poland, in the Ukraine, in Belarus, in other parts of Central and Eastern Europe. That's the land where they committed the most unthinkable atrocities Against the Jewish people. You think that's a coincidence. That God threw them out from their homes. I don't think so. He has the right. To give homes. And to take homes. God commanded the earth. To bring forth all vegetation. According to its kind. The fish and the fowl. According to their kind. The land creatures. According to their kind. Now, this word, according to their kind, emphasizes differentiation. An apple tree is not a cherry tree. A pig is not a cow. And so creation tells us God loves diversity. He did not just want one kind of bird. Although, that would would have made some things much easier. He wanted thousands of different kinds of birds big and small and colorful and black and birds that fly and birds that run and birds that swim because he loves diversity it may be that a world in which we would have just had corn and apples to eat would have been easier but that's not what god wanted He wanted cherries and pineapples and strawberries, my favorites, and rye and rice and thousands of different tastes and smells. And so diversity is a source of beauty and a reflection of God's character and God's love for us. Now, last night, Elsa and I were at a birthday party, and I happened to have a conversation with the person who runs the fruit fly laboratory at Indiana University. And here is my challenge question. How many kinds of fruit flies do you think they have? Give me a number. (laughs) Nope. Not enough. Not enough. 800,000 kinds of fruit flies. That's one species, fruit flies, 800,000 different versions of it. That's the beauty of diversity. Isn't that awesome? 800,000? I couldn't believe it, but, you know, she has the PhD, so. (laughs) so she knows. Now, it's interesting to see that all the godless regimes of the past 100 years promoted uniformity. Adolf Hitler once said that, His greatest joy in life was to look at a wall of several thousand men, all dressed alike in gray, with a gray hat, all looking alike, all equal. That was his greatest joy. No individuality. Mao Zedong closed a billion Chinese in blue pants and blue jackets with little blue hats, so they all look exactly the same. And you know what? That passion for uniformity came with a passion for killing everybody who did not conform to their model of man. That goes together. Diversity is joy of life. Uniformity forced on people is hatred for life. God's love for diversity is an expression of his love for every individual being in exactly the shape and form God gave it. So that when we see a swarm of red and white and yellow butterflies, we can be assured that God loves us in exactly the shape and form that he made us. And if God loves diversity, we can enjoy it, actually work called to enjoy it too. The account of God's creation tells us that we should welcome people who look different, who come from different backgrounds, who have strange German accents. We should welcome them into our communities. Creation tells us that all forms of racism are ungodly. Both the form of racism that places one race above another and the form of racism that says All races are the same. It tells us not to deny the differences between men and women. It tells us that we should encourage people to develop their different gifts and talents. Because the Bible says everybody, and that means everybody in this room, has a gift from God that he can develop and she can develop to serve God and his church. But then we must recognize, too, that after sin entered the world, there are also sinful divisions in the world. The fall itself is a sinful division. It separates man from God, which God did not intend. Human divisions are often sinful in that they go against God's order. So the fact that God loves diversity does not mean that he loves diversity in the sense that modern society promotes it. The diversity of all kinds of sexual practices, the diversity that says everything goes, you can do whatever you like, that's not the diversity God loves. After the fall, the law of God teaches us how to make proper distinctions in our lives. What is good, what is bad, what is clean, what is unclean, which means not fit for a life in the presence of God. Jesus has freed all those who trust in him from the curse of the law, which is the false idea that we can please God by our own works of the law. And yet, Jesus upholds the law as our guide, telling us what are good choices. And what are bad choices? The divisions God established in creation come with two qualifiers. The first qualifier in the English translation reads, and it was so. You remember I read that several times through the text, and it was so. And when you hear that, you think, well, that's just something that belongs to the flow of the story. But in the Hebrew it does not. The root of what the English translates soul is really solid or firm. So one should translate, and it was firm. Moreover, the Hebrew language does not have does not have past tense and future tense and present tense in the same way that uh, we use it. So when it says, and it was firm, you could also say, and it is firm. Or, and it will be firm. In other words, it is firm forever from creation to eternity. The first time this appears is after the creation of the firmament and the division of the waters from below and above. That Division is firm. In contrast, where God divides day from night, this qualifier is not used because day follows night and night follows days, so it does not stand firm. So you ask yourself, what then is an ordinance forever in creation? What will be there forever? Well, the firmament Dividing the waters above from the waters below. The existence of dry land. The earth bringing forth vegetation according to all kinds. Light in the firmament. The earth bringing forth living creatures according to their kinds. Land as a habitation for man stands forever. As does the diversity of living beings according to their kinds. Which tells us evolution is a nice model to explain why There were small horses a few thousand years ago, and now horses are big. That's evolution. But it's within a kind. Biology has no examples of, of crossing over the borders of species. The creation of living beings as male and female with the command to be fruitful and multiply is an ordinance forever. The other day, Ilse and I listened to a radio show where Some woman had written a book on the fate of humanity, and somebody calls in and says, so what do you think about that bad problem of overpopulation? And immediately she goes, yeah, that's a very bad problem, and if we don't have global birth control, humans will disappear. She didn't have a single argument for why that would be true. It was just, yeah, that's a very bad problem. Because these people hate life. Overpopulation is not a problem. God calls us to be fruitful and multiply, and he gives us the resources we need for that. So does the creation account teach us that the world as we know it will last forever? No. Quite the opposite. It teaches us That it will not. We've already noted that the division of day and night is not qualified with and it is firm. And that's true for two other things. God made the sun and the moon and the text never says and it is firm. And God commanded the waters of the sea to abound with fish and the waters of the sky to abound with fowl. The text never says and it is firm. Is that mere coincidence? I don't think so. Because Revelations 21 tells us that in the new creation, when God's people live in the presence of their Lord eternally, there will be no night. Night is the time when the demons and the devil do their dirty work. That has no place in God's eternal kingdom. Night is the time when wicked people do wicked things. That has no place in the kingdom of God. And then, Revelations 21 also tells us that there will be no sun. Time as we know it will disappear. There will be just one eternal day in the presence of God. And finally, it tells us that there will be no sea. And obviously, therefore, there will be no fish. Sorry, guys. No fish burgers. No going fishing in paradise. Because there will be no sea. Why? Because the sea in the Bible is always portrayed as an evil enemy of the people of God. And it has no place in eternity. So the creation account already tells us that the world as we know it, as we think we manage it for ourselves, will not last forever. And that should teach us not to be proud. And think that we're building nuclear plants that will last into eternity. That's absurd because things are not made forever. But there will be land for man to live on, and there will be vegetation, veggies to eat, so we won't be hungry. And there will be living beings in all their diversity. And so we have something to look forward to. Now the other qualifier is good. God saw the light and it was good. The separation of dry land from the waters was good. The vegetation, the sun, the moon, the stars, the fish and the fowl and the land creatures were good. And notice even those things that will not be there in eternity were good. Notice also that the text does not say that the earth with light was good, pretty good, and the earth with light and the firmament was better, and the earth with light and the firmament and dry ground was even better. That's not what it says. Creation does not talk about progress. It just says it was good. So it's like looking at an object with an increasingly strong looking glass where first you don't even see form and then you take a stronger glass and you see form and then you take an even stronger glass and you see things appear and order and then you take an even stronger glass and you see differentiation. And each time you put a new lens, God says what you see is good. And that means it was just the way God wanted it. Beautiful, fitting, and adequate for what God wanted it to be. No imperfections and weaknesses. Peaceful. There were no natural disasters like floods and earthquakes and tornadoes. And there were, in the animal world, no predators and no prey. Because we all ate veggies. Isaiah Gives us a glimpse into this world when he says, The wolf and the lamb dwell together, the leopard lies down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the child leads them. And it's interesting when you read that passage from Isaiah 65, it does not mention fish and it does not mention birds, but it does mention land animals in all their diversity. And man. A good world. But then, how come that the world we live in has plenty of natural disasters? Why does your dog eat mice? And why do pigs eat their own offspring? Now, I found it fascinating to look at modern physics in this context, quantum physics in particular. And I confess, I had like six months of physics in high school. I have no clue. But there's a message here which I find fascinating. Quantum mechanics is the part of physics that deals with the world at the tiniest scale. Subatomic. Where everything is particles or electric waves. And a key insight of this is that there is in all matter a degree of indeterminacy which says this music stand could suddenly change its appearance and form and characteristic discreetly it's not very likely to happen but it could okay in other words the things that we see are not deterministic they have a an openness And so that says from the beginning, God's creation had a degree of freedom, a degree of indeterminacy. If physics told us that the world is a determinate system, it would tell us what we see now is exactly what we saw at creation. And so then either we throw away the Bible or we throw away physics, but there's no reconciliation. And we would have to believe that the world at creation had natural disasters, illnesses, all sorts of bad things. What kind of God would that be who creates the world like that? Well, the good news is we don't have to believe that because physics does not tell us that the world is like that. The material world can change. In biblical terms, creation was good, but it was corruptible and that's exactly what the bible tells us when man abused the freedom god gave him and rejected the creator in the fall the whole of creation the bible says was affected the earth was cursed and no longer cooperated with man in his work romans 8:20 20 and 21 says that as a consequence of what adam did adam's sin the whole creation was changed It no longer served the purposes it was created for. Instead, it became destructive. It became a threat to man. It was subjected, and it is subjected, to the bondage of corruption, just as man is. Now, you want to note that the creation account still says that creation is good. Although, it is corruptible. And so you ask yourself, so was God a cynic to create this world that could go wrong? Why didn't he make a world that remained perfect? Now, in the first sermon this morning, I said God could have created a world that couldn't go wrong, but only at the price of creating man as a puppet with no freedom to decide to either love God or reject him. And then after that sermon, Tim came up to me and said, you know, you shouldn't say that because it's wrong. Because if we affirm that God is sovereign, then the whole idea that he could not do something because he would have been forced to do something else is absurd. And Tim is right. That's a popular argument in theology, but it's typically academic. And I confess, it's stupid. (laughs) So I won't say that this morning and just say, we have no clue why God did what he did. But what we know is that from the beginning, he had a plan to redeem the world. And that means his creation, the earth, the plants, the animals, and us. Through his word, which became flesh, Jesus Christ. And what it then also says is the world is still indeterminate, and it can change again. And God assures us that this will happen. This creation will be restored as it was in the beginning, when Jesus returns to this earth. And therefore, creation is good, after all, and I'm an idiot, after all, but not after this sermon. So, why do we need to know all this? Well, first, Genesis was written for a people that just came out of a brutal slavery in Egypt. And they were on their way to the land that God was giving them. And they needed to know where they were going and where they came from. And so, the creation account told them, first of all, the land is God's land. And he will give it to you because he's gracious and he loves you. But he can also take it away from you. And they needed to know that God created everything because that means he rules over everything, and they would not have to be afraid of all the things that their neighbors were afraid of the moon, the stars, animals, whatever. And it tells us the same don't fear Putin, don't fear the husband who abuses you, don't fear cancer, fear God. And trust him because he rules over Putin and he rules over your husband and he rules over your body and cancer and everything else. Don't worship money or academic degrees or sex. Worship God who is your creator and gives you everything you need. Secondly, creation tells us that this world is corrupted but it is good. And like the people of Israel, we as Christians, as God's people, have a role to play in this corrupted world. That's why God puts us here. We are his light in this world. Our role is to make his glory and his light visible in this world. And that means we have no right to despise of the world. Jesus says in his last prayer with his disciples, He sends his disciples into the world. He doesn't take them out of the world. And finally, the creation account told the Jews where they ultimately came from. And you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you come from. Christians say, our hope is in the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And so put your hope in him And your future will be secured in his kingdom. Creation restored. Good.